0: Another thing that's changed is the attitudes are better, Dominic. People are talking about it. Famous people are reaching out to NAMI, participating in our Instagram chats, and, you know, they have huge followings of millions of people, and they're talking about their mental health vulnerabilities. This is a big change.
1: Hi, I'm Dominic, and I'm the host of the International Risk Podcast. This podcast is for CEOs, board members, risk and compliance officers, security advisors, and anyone interested in improving operations. In these interviews, we'll speak with renowned international experts in a variety of fields. If you know me, then you know that I've successfully established operations in some of the most complex environments around the world. Joined by our excellent guests, I'm excited to share with you some useful ideas on how you can help your organization thrive in areas with high risk. Today, we are joined by Ken Duckworth.
0: Then culture, is it okay to seek help?
1: Can you use
0: your sick days ever for a mental health day for whatever reason?
1: Ken's journey into psychiatry started when he was a boy, growing up with a dad who experienced severe bipolar disorder. His father was loving, kind, and periodically quite ill. Ken became a psychiatrist in part to help his father. Ken is very fortunate to serve as the medical director for the National Alliance for Mental Illness and to be part of this remarkable community. Along with his work at the NAMI, Ken is also an assistant professor of psychiatry at Harvard University Medical School. Welcome to the podcast today, Ken. Thank you, Dominic. It's nice to be here. Yeah, it's really nice to have you. Ken The definition of risk management is about the ability to identify and overcome potential risk. And it's a key part of governance and leadership. The long-term success of an organization relies on many things, including continually assessing their risk exposure. Now, if we consider mental health at the macro level, what do you see as the biggest risk today for companies and employees? Now, if we can consider mental health at the macro level, What do you see as the biggest risk today for companies and employees? Dominic, an interesting things happened in the last few years, which is employers have gone
0: from thinking of mental health and substance use as inconvenient expenditures that they hope to avoid to a complete transformation in the recognition that the mental well-being and good care of their employees is actually one of the best predictors of their company's success. Uh, This is very welcome for me as a psychiatrist, as the National Alliance on Mental Illness's chief doctor, uh, because I've been seeing this, you know, through the lens of a teaching and advocacy organization, but I'd say in the last three years. Now, again, I only work in the States, so it may be different in other countries, but employers have come to understand that the leading cause of absenteeism and presenteeism, which means showing up for work, but not really working is untreated depression. And mental health concerns have gotten substantially worse in the pandemic. And I think of this silver lining of this catastrophic worldwide event as a recognition that mental health has become a we, not a they phenomena. So most of us know somebody who's living with panic disorder or depression or trauma or relapse from addiction. And while you wouldn't want it to go this way, I think the recognition that these are common, treatable conditions is going to change attitudes. It certainly has changed attitudes in the United States.
1: That's really positive to hear, Ken. I think it's fantastic that we can start referring to this as an us, a we, a me issue, and not a they event. What do you think are some of the major mental health risks today?
0: Well, the Center for Disease Control in the States did a survey of American adults in real time using standardized measures. So it's not just the subjective feelings of people. They actually took screening tests that you would take at your primary care doctor or family doctor. And that survey showed that 41.9% of Americans had clinically significant mental health symptoms, depression, anxiety, trauma, or relapse of addiction. This was adults only. And it impacted different populations differently. Young people are suffering a great deal. I think anyone who has gray hair should be mindful of the fact that the younger generation has given a lot in this pandemic. Being isolated, not being able to go to college or to school, secondary school, and pursue your dreams has really impacted them at the developmental challenge in a way that people who have established careers and families haven't been hit quite as hard. So if you look at that survey, anxiety, depression, trauma, and addiction relapse, all in that order, one, two, three, four. And disproportionately impacting young people, unpaid caregivers, so if you have a family member with dementia or another problem, people of color, essential workers. These are the people that were experiencing the highest amounts of mental health concern. And if you look at the percentage of people who are living with suicidal thinking, it's quite high as well, surprisingly so. So how the pandemic is gonna impact mental health is still relatively unknown. But we also know that people have struggled with this. And if you think of human relationships as having antidepressant and anti-anxiety qualities with no side effects, you know, then isolation, curfews, all these things that we're doing to serve the well-being of people and to prevent unnecessary deaths may have a mental health component to them.
1: It seems like a really huge number when we talk about 41.9% of people having clinically significant mental health disorders. Should we be surprised by that number, Ken? Well, again, we had a crisis in America before the pandemic.
0: So our suicide numbers have continued to rise. America, of course, leads the world in opiate overdose deaths. I encourage all of you in international countries to learn from the American errors in the overprescribing of opiates for pain syndromes. I make a note of that because America has mismanaged that quite badly. We have our gotten our arms around it. The numbers are getting better, but we had a mental health crisis before the pandemic. And... Uh, You know, my work at the National Alliance on Mental Illness has never been busier. I think I've been contacted by, I think it was 250 media outlets. I get two calls a day to talk to the media about mental health, about stress, about suicidal thoughts. You know, Meghan Markle did an interview last night here in the States with Oprah, and she discussed her own concerns about not wanting to live. This represents a sea change again in how people talk about this. This used to only be isolation and shame. And again, now this is part of the human condition. People have desperate feelings at times, and they're better off if they can talk about it, get support and get treatment.
1: You mentioned earlier the impact of mental health disorders and COVID-related isolation and how this has paused the dreams of so many people. And this has particularly impacted the youth that are going through a developmentally important period. What do you think the long-term impacts of this are? And what can business leaders be doing to support what will be the next generation to enter the workforce? I
0: think it's a really good question, and I don't think we know. I would not be surprised if this generation carried with it some psychological trauma as a result of missing, say, two years of college or their senior year of school. Like They're giving up things that won't be coming back your chance to be the star in the senior play or go to the senior prom, usually with the wrong person, I might add. But that's a time-honored ritual in the States, right? To go to the senior prom. I will say that when a generation goes through something, it stays with them. Dominic, I'm gonna tell you a story. This will just give you an idea because this is a true story. My parents grew up in the Great Depression and uh, my mother didn't have running water. My father had to quit high school in order to support his family. 45 years later, 40 years later, they are successful people in suburban Detroit. And uh, when we went to visit my grandmother, they informed me that there was a full gallon of milk in the refrigerator and told me that I was to drink it. I was 13 years old, six foot one, freakishly large and eating them out of house and home. They explained to me that my job was to drink the entire gallon of milk before we went to see Mumum because the gallon of milk cost, I think, 39 cents at the time. So you're telling me that 50 years, 45 years after the Great Depression, they were still scarred by that experience to such a profound extent that they couldn't bear the thought of giving up a gallon of milk while they had a strapping lad who's eating them out of house and home. The answer is that's exactly what happened. And they could see it. It wasn't that it was unconscious. They would say to my brother, who was a very successful businessman, Jody, it may not always be like this. Things can go badly. And in the 2006 housing collapse in America, my brother said to me, you know, I think mom and dad might have been right that the scars that they lived with through the Great Depression both shaped their thinking and also offered some cautionary tales as we were so exuberant.
1: Yeah, I love that idea, Ken. And I hope that we can all learn something positive from this story about your parents' And find the silver linings in what continues to be a painful experience for so many people around the world. Dominic,
0: one thing my mother did tell me, though, I asked her about being poor. And she said to me, here is the thing about it, Ken. We knew we were poor, but we were all in it together. And this is interesting to me because this is the ultimate shared experience of high school seniors and college students across the world. They're all missing something great. And they're missing it together. So I think there might be an opportunity for shared experience and potential connection because my mom used to really emphasize this point that if they were the only people that were poor, it would have felt differently, but they were part of a community of people going through the same thing.
1: That is a very valid point, Ken. A community, workforce or leadership group going through the same event can create very strong bonds. I personally know that special forces selection deliberately makes us go through a process that creates the same shared pain, shared suffering, experiences, and connection between those people that successfully get through the selection process, and these bonds become unbreakable. So let's hope if there are some positive things to come out of the pandemic, that it's a shared bond amongst and within our communities that brings us all closer because of the shared experience. Tell me, Ken, how do you think mental health considerations have evolved over the last decade?
0: Well, it's interesting. You know, you're an Australian. The Australians have taught us so much in the States about early intervention in psychosis. I believe the Australian of the year a decade ago was uh, Dr. Patrick McGrory, who's a psychiatrist in Melbourne. And the idea that you could treat, for instance, the early onset of psychosis as a public health concern, and you could interview people and provide them with compassionate, thoughtful, strength-based care is really an idea that came from Australia and Europe and has come to America. So that's a good example of an international sharing of a better approach. America now has 300 of these early psychosis programs. That is available on NAMI.org. So if you have a young adult or adolescent who's experiencing paranoia and withdrawal, there's actually a very well-researched approach to that. You don't have to you know, hide in shame. And on the NAMI website, www.nami.org, N-A-M-I.org, you can get access to where these programs are. They're available in 49 out of 50 states, but Australia and many parts of Europe, these programs are evident. So this is one example of how treatment frameworks have improved. Another example is there are treatments now that we didn't have before transcranial magnetic stimulation, RTMS, is a kind of magnet intervention for treatment-resistant depression. This is FDA approved for treatment-resistant depression and for treatment-resistant obsessive-compulsive disorder. We didn't have that whole framework before. This is brain stimulation that has none of the side effects of say shock treatment. Another thing that's changed is the attitudes are better, Dominic. People are talking about it. Famous people are reaching out to NAMI participating in our Instagram chats and, you know, they have huge followings of millions of people and they're talking about their mental health vulnerabilities. This is a big change in a decade. I would also say, you know, that not everything is better. We still have a lot of inequity in the States and who has access to insurance. We still don't have a diverse workforce that can treat people, you know, and the people can feel like they have somebody who understands their culture, or the rudiments of their experience. We have a long way to go. I do think that the pandemic is going to have this side effect where mental health will not be a forgotten aspect of the human condition, but is rather one of the central aspects that's happening to people in the pandemic.
1: Well, that's fantastic that there are now better approaches to early intervention and new treatments also available. How is the pandemic mentally affecting people's performance. You spoke about absenteeism, but you know, what, what should employers and managers and leaders be aware of and, and how should they be either responding or maybe even preparing before, before they identify some of the, the early signs? When I think about an employer
0: group, I think about culture and benefits. So in the States, let's just talk about benefits. Employers get to select your healthcare benefits. So the natural temptation would be to buy the cheapest health plan. Another approach is to take a look at the health plans you're purchasing and look at who has the best mental health network. Who is the most provider friendly so that if your employee needs help, they can get it. Which benefits are you providing in terms of some of these creative cognitive behavioral coaching interventions that are out there for people who don't want therapy but they don't want their automatic negative thoughts to get the best of them. And then culture, is it okay to seek help? Can you use your sick days ever for a mental health day for whatever reason? Is the CEO of the company demonstrating that mental health and substance use treatment is acceptable to get? They don't have to have this experience themselves, but one experience I did with one employer in terms of culture, I had pitched to the organization that we should have people in recovery from addiction, discuss their stories about five years ago. And they said, Ken, that's outrageous. We can't do that. Uh, We're a corporation. We don't have that. About two years later, the people on the diversity committee came to me and said, Hey, Ken, I heard you had this idea that people in addiction recovery should talk about their stories in public. And I said, yes, I did, but the company wasn't ready. They said, well, we have four people that want to talk about their recovery. And so the single best meeting I ever had at that job was about 1,000 people attended an event where four very brave people talked about their recovery from alcohol, multiple substances, or opiates. They were greeted with love and support by their employees, by their colleagues, and their bosses. I hosted the event because I was the house shrink, you know, at the time. But the CEO of the company opened the meeting and said, this is the culture I want. What was remarkable about that meeting, Dominic, was the stories were beautiful and compelling, and these were good employees. Very importantly, they were not in trouble with HR in any way. They were in recovery. I had emails the next day from people who said, I have worked here for 20 years. Today is the first day I feel that I belong here because of that event. So that's like a perfect example of how culture matters. That was a two hour meeting at four o'clock on a Thursday. I don't think it affected productivity at all. What I think it did is it told people it's okay to live with this kind of challenge. And we want you anyway, that this is an ordinary part of the human condition. You don't have to only suffer in shame. So that was one of my proudest moments at that job. And it's something I've thought a lot about. You know, What if more organizations said, it's okay to be in recovery with a mental health or addiction problem. It's okay to see kelp. Here's Susie. She works in accounting. She's been sober for nine years, or she's managed her bipolar disorder beautifully. Why don't we listen to Susie and see how she's done it? Because these things are ubiquitous in the human condition.
1: Yeah, it's a great story, Ken. You spoke about diversity and you also spoke about the CEO and uh, different peoples within the organization. Are different industries or different workers or people at different levels of seniority more at risk of mental illness?
0: I don't
1: think that's quite true. So how do you think
0: about risk? And this is a risk podcast, right? So my dad had very bad bipolar disorder. So I am theoretically at higher risk right, than the next person, but it hasn't been a big part of my life for reasons that are unknown to me. And I'm aware that I have an increased risk and who knows what will befall me in the future, but so far, so your genetics imply some risk, your environment, if you've been traumatized or abused or have had a lot of adversity. There's a study called the Adverse Childhood Experience Study, which I consider to be a work of genius. The Adverse Childhood Experience study asked people in their 30s and 40s what adversity they faced as children. A father in prison, witnessing your mother being abused at home, sexual assault, physical violence to the child. These are all very unpleasant things, but they're actually more common than we might like. What that study showed is that if you've had those experiences as a child, you're more likely to have both mental health and addiction challenges as an adult, but also medical problems. That some of the most expensive medical vulnerabilities come from people whose bodies have been so impacted by these psychological traumas. That study is ACE, the Adverse Childhood Experience, and aces.org, I just feel is worthy of as much attention as people can give it, because it's a different way to think about risk. And it's out of your control, what happened to you as a child, but then what are the strategies and resilience and coping, giving to others that you can do to reduce your risk? It's actually a very good question. So I don't think there's more risk for a CEO than for a line worker. I think being a human being, You have to assess your genetic risk, your environmental risk. We don't know how those two things fit together, Dominic. We just don't know. They probably influence each other. Environment probably activates and settles down different genes and they get expressed over time. So when people say nature or nurture, the answer is both. But we really need to know a lot more about that.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. And speaking about environmental risks, I understand there's an extremely high rate of health workers with depression and mental health challenges due to the pandemic. How is the NAMI helping these workers? And, and do health workers need special treatment because they're already working within the health profession? Different to, say, I guess, non-health workers?
0: Well, health workers are under tremendous psychological stress. Taking care of people who are dying, sick, and may you know, confer infection to you and to your loved ones. is a tremendous psychological risk. We had a very beloved emergency room doctor, Dr. Lorna Breen, die by suicide, I'm going to say two months into the pandemic. And this has really raised the consciousness of people that healthcare workers used to be thought of as the healthy people taking care of the sick people. Again, this is part of the we of mental health instead of the they healthcare workers are living with post traumatic symptoms anxiety and depression so nami got a grant and we put together a program called frontline wellness where we have resources where people can go to get free psychotherapy where people can watch blogs of other people in frontline roles not just healthcare but police and fire the people who are engaged as essential employees they can't work from home right? They have to take care of people. And so this is an initiative that we had never done before that we've completely stood up. And if you're on the NABI website, you'll see Frontline Wellness as a new feature on our
1: website. Thanks. And we'll make sure we link to all these studies and papers that you're referring to. We'll link to them in the show notes so all the listeners can listen and read to those afterwards. There's been a lot of debate, and in many countries, there's even been a lot of civil unrest and even violence about the COVID restrictions what is the risk to society of a prolonged quarantine or social restrictions, or, or maybe at the same time, high levels of COVID related deaths?
0: Dominic, isn't this one I get to say this is above my pay grade. <laughs> so this is the interface of public health infectious disease risk on the one hand, and isolation and mental health and addiction challenges on the other. And I think this is really hard. And you've seen from certain states in the Americas that people have chosen to ignore the public health side of the equation, right? I'm not particularly proud of this aspect of American rugged individualism. And I think for the most part, my daughter lives in Madrid. I was just conferring with a psychiatrist who consults in the Dominican Republic, Peru and Russia. She's impressed that most countries are willing to wear masks and are willing to have curfews and America has not distinguished itself in terms of our outcomes on this. So obviously, you have to strike a balance. You have to attend to the basics of public health. I think if everybody wore a mask and spent time outside instead of inside, we'd be in a lot better shape as a world. I do think the vaccine presents interesting opportunities. I got vaccinated as a doctor, and I now vaccinate people as a hobby as a volunteer on weekends, because I wanna be a small part of this. It makes me feel a little less helpless about the whole thing. People are so grateful to be getting vaccinated. And I understand that not everybody is in favor of vaccination. I think the science is fantastic. I think Nobel prizes will be given. This has been studied for 20 years. It's not brand new. This was being worked on uh, for other viruses like Ebola, They were trying this model of mRNA viruses for 20 years, and now they work, and they work in a really big way. So I think that's going to enable us to open up. I certainly feel a little lighter inside that I am vaccinated, and when I inject people at this little clinic that I volunteer at, they're universally grateful. They're remarkably aware of what science has done. So if America has been the country that has challenged science the most, I'll just say from my little experience at a rural clinic in Massachusetts, people believe in science and they believe in vaccines. And this is hopeful to me because I think this is how we're gonna get past a lot of this. Medically, I do think psychologically there's going to be a tail on this, Dominic. I don't think people are a light switch and they're gonna go back to their former level of functioning. Some people who've lived with anxiety or depression or trauma or addiction, going to have to face you know a new reality where they're doing better but they're not well and they're continuously challenged in this regard so i don't think it's going to be a one-way street i think we're going to be wearing masks we still are living with a fair amount of uncertainty how will the new variants play out vis-a-vis the vaccine so living with uncertainty is i think part of the new normal and i think that's hard for a lot of people
1: yeah, that's really interesting. And I like your analogy about people not being light switches. I think that's that's really interesting. I've seen a lot of papers about, and this was even before COVID, but certainly during COVID as well, about a growing tendency for people to shift towards or return to a, a position of faith. And I know that's in America as a country with perhaps a larger faith community. What's your opinion about the interplay between faith and mental health and the challenges? You know, we're living in a very volatile and uncertain world. Do you have any thoughts on the interplay between all these issues?
0: Faith is many things, but it's also community. And I think being part of a community is really powerful. A community that believes in a higher power offers an additional perspective. And faith is itself, you know, its own benefit in some ways. So, you know, I think people who have that in their lives are better off for it. And I think the fact that there's community, discipline attached to their faith is also important. So, you know, I haven't seen studies on how people are thinking about their faith in the context of the pandemic, but it wouldn't surprise me if some people are drawing support and strength from their faith. NAMI has a program called FaithNet, which is an interdenominational connection of people in a faith community. And I think that's a strong piece of the support portfolio around mental health.
1: That's interesting, Ken. I'm not sure if you listen to the same pastor that I do, but uh, the title of Sunday's preaching at at my church is We Are In This Together. And his message was that the importance of community. So it's quite interesting that you've covered many of the same points that, Mm. that he did on Sunday. You've mentioned the National Alliance for Mental Illness a few times. And what do you wish more people knew about NAMI?
0: Every time somebody comes to me and said, I wish I'd known about NAMI five years ago, it just breaks my heart. Because the number of people who've told me that NAMI's programs and support have saved their marriage or saved their family or helped them to advocate for something better for other people, even if things went badly for their own family member. You know, it's a great organization. It's a nonprofit. It has the highest charity rating, four stars from Charity Navigator. It's good people doing God's work. It's only in the States we get requests all the time from other countries you know, for how we did it or our programming and models. I just got an email from Malaysia yesterday. So there's increasing, I would say, global interest in what we're trying to do, which is support, education, and advocacy. And uh, it's a great group. It's a great organization. It's a great privilege for me to be the psychiatrist for the National Alliance on Mental Illness. What we do matters. And if you look at what's happening in the mental health space, you can see that we have a impact in that area. And it's great to have a mission in life, Dominic. I know you've created that through your work and your podcast. The gift of a mission should never be underestimated.
1: Yeah, that's a great point. I'd have to ask you, Ken, you've said a lot of inspiring things today that I'm sure a lot of people are going to draw strength from. But who inspires you? Ah, what a good question.
0: So my dad uh, was such a delightful and fun person. And he had such a terrible illness. And this was back in the day before anybody talked about it. There was never a famous person that would reveal that they were living with a serious mental health condition. And it was really my love for him that got me to go to medical school. I wasn't particularly interested in science. Uh, I was more of a Churchill guy, history. You know, I had a pathway to teaching liberal arts at a small college. And of course, my dad's illness was such a profound impact in my life, you know, that I decided to become a psychiatrist to help him. And as a doctor, I have been so inspired by so many people who are living good lives with challenging conditions. And so I would say my patients inspire me. My father was my original inspiration. And then people at NAMI are inspiring me. The peer leaders who are working to reduce restraints in hospitals, the people who are fighting for Medicaid coverage, as you know, in the States. We don't consider health insurance a right, as you do in a lot of Western European and Australian countries. And so we have to fight for things. And I find that very inspiring. So uh, it's a great gift. And uh, my wife also inspires me because she's loving and kind, no matter how many times I've gone off the rails on the importance of mental health and the injustices towards people who have mental illnesses. She's consistently fantastic.
1: Well, that's fantastic. I'm glad that you have her by your side and uh, and supporting you from behind and no doubt a lot of the time in front as well, (laughs) slowing you down and speeding you up. That's right. That's right. Regulating me in her own special way. Well, that's good. Well, thanks very much for joining us today, Ken. I've really enjoyed the conversation with you and I think our listeners will have as well. Thank you, Dominic. What you're doing is cool and important
0: and it was nice to be on your podcast.
1: Well, that was a great conversation with Ken Duckworth, psychiatrist and a very interesting guest. I really appreciated Ken's thoughts on the importance of discussing our own mental health challenges, also the advances in mental health treatment and the work of the National Alliance for Mental Health Illness. Please go to wherever you download your podcast and give this podcast a five-star review. Your positive reviews on this podcast and subscribing to future downloads is critical for our success. Thank you for listening, and we'll speak again next week.